Welcome to the Regular People Podcasts. I'm Wade Allen, and today I'm joined by Matt. I believe we're going to be talking a lot about veganism and the philosophy behind it today. So I think that'll be fun. I'm a vegan. Matt's a vegan. And it's come up a few times in the past episodes, but I just want to clarify, not everybody on this podcast is a vegan. I think this will be episode number six. And at this point, four out of six people that I've interviewed were vegan. So not everyone, but most. That doesn't really matter, though. I just wanted to give some clarification. Anyway, today I've got Matt on. Hello, Matt. Hey, Wade. How's it going? Going well. Going well. How are you? I'm doing all right. So before we talk about anything actually like substantial, I want to know, and I want the listener to know more about you as a person. So if you could just explain, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing with the past like five years of your life. Sure. Well, I think, uh, you know, it's actually relevant to our topic today about five and a half years years ago, I went vegan. So I've been vegan the last five years. It's been a big part of my life. Um, I've spent some time teaching. I've spent some time. Do you talk about your work? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I spent some time working with you, Wade, at the yeah. uh, cafe and, and uh, at the vegan cafe. And so like did a couple of years with that, helping start start that up. And then um, I'm teaching now. So um, yeah, that's kind of like the really short summary. Yeah. So. What made you go vegan? Like, was there a specific thing or is it like a combination of things? Yeah, well, it was actually about like, a, it was approximately in a 10 or 11 year process. I remember when I was a student, I was reading Indian philosophy, specifically like Hinduism, and I was looking at the concept of reincarnation. I remember the first time having this thought, perhaps I had it when I was younger, right? Like, what value do animals have? But this idea yeah. of like, well, what if an animal has a soul and they're on some sort of continuum with us and... You know, they're not just radically different, but perhaps they're like us in ways that I don't often think about. And I remember uh, when I was studying that, that that summer, I decided, well, I'm going to go like vegetarian. I'm going to go vegetarian for some. That was like 10 years ago? Or? Yeah, that was like 05. So I did that over that summer. And then um, and then I just kind of let it sit. I think for many years, I was just kind of like the type of uh, like when you'd go out to eat, I'd always pick a vegetarian option. But when I was on my own, I'd just do whatever. And then I feel like I, that's kind of the opposite of what a lot of people do. I feel like a lot of people eat vegetarian at home and then when they're going out to eat, they eat whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was kind of like, you know, like when I have 25 options in front of me on a menu, if one or two are vegetarian, it's like so easy to pick. Yeah. But then when I got home, I would fall into my same habits and oh. just eat whatever. I started eat, trying to eat a lot of fish. I was like doing like... Pescatarian? Kind of, you know what I mean? It's, it'd just be like, if I could avoid red meat, I would do chicken. If I could avoid that, I'd do fish. Yeah. Um, you know, and if it was super easy and convenient, if I had pizza, I would never get meat. You know what I mean? But like it was about six years ago, um, actually it would have been New Year's Day on 2014. I decided to go vegetarian like all the way. Yeah. So I did a year of vegetarianism and then New Year's Day on 2015, I went vegan. And so like in that process, it was kind of a lot of watching YouTube videos, thinking about it, like what responsibility do I have towards animals? And then convincing myself to follow through with the conclusions that I reached, yeah. right? And uh, which in hindsight, I had probably already begun reaching those conclusions in 2005. And I just didn't, didn't follow through on them. But. I think that's definitely what happened with me too. I kind of realized these things. And then it took a long time after that to actually act on them. Yeah. So you would say then that your main reason was an ethical one for becoming vegan? It was like about worrying about the value that animals have and their experience rather rather than one like mostly an environmental reason or a health reason like yeah, the initial almost entirely yeah. i didn't think at all about the environment yeah with regard to that choice and maybe health was like in the back of my you know it's like always good just to like 
cut out the garbage. But yeah, yeah, it was, it was focused on the, the question of animals. Yeah. So I kind of did a transition. I think a lot of people do. At least I feel like the people who stay vegan the longest or for their whole lives, it seems like a lot of the ones I've talked to do a slow transition. And I feel like the people who do it all at once go from eating whatever to just vegan. I feel like they maybe lack some preparation. So then they stop doing it four months later. Yeah. So for me, I stopped eating red meat. Shortly after that, I stopped drinking milk and I kind of like transitioned things out of it. And then I was also vegetarian for a year, like you said you were. And then I went vegan. And I feel like that's kind of a I don't know, more guaranteed success way to do it is the slow transition. But for me, I think the main reason, I guess I had like the ethical ideas in my mind when I was doing it. But the main thing that got me was the environmental reasons for going vegan. I got bombarded with that. And that was what made me change my mind. And then after the fact, I like learning about any health reasons and then learning more about any ethical reasons. I forget when that was. Was that like, was that pre cowspiracy kind of? Oh, or was it? Were yeah, you influenced I, by that? Uh, yeah, the cowspiracy was what made me stop eating red meat. Okay. Yeah, that was like probably I would say the starting point of any sort of transitions I made. Cowspiracy, which that was like is a really it's a vegan documentary. Yeah. About the environmental effects. Yeah, it's mostly about yeah. the environmental effects. It's yeah. got a little bit of other stuff in there, but mostly environment. And that was on Netflix, and I just heard recently. I haven't looked it up to verify, but I don't think it's on Netflix anymore. If you want, you could probably find it probably on the website. I'm sure. I imagine that it's up for free on the website. I don't know why it wouldn't be. Well, it used to be for pay, but then there's always people uploading those documentaries like That's true. illicitly. Yeah, you could find yeah. it somewhere. Yeah. But yeah, it's a really good one. And yeah, I remember looking back at stuff I had written in like fifth grade, just notes in class. And I remember one was talking about how messed up it is that we like eat cows. So I guess I was thinking about these things for a long time, but didn't actually do anything about it until whenever that was 2016 that's cool yeah and i think i agree with you about maybe the slow process being beneficial i mean for me it's like in hind i mean as i look at that i see 10 years of just kind of like delaying and dragging my feet but during that process it was also like a slow um it was like a gradual consideration of the question right and so perhaps when i reached the conclusions and then like somehow was able to get my will to cooperate with the decisions that my intellect had reached, perhaps they they had more, a, a stronger foundation. Yeah. And I feel like people are kind of generally resistant to change in their lives. Yeah. So if you do it slowly, if you're used to eating a certain way or making certain meals at home, and then you abruptly change that, it's probably going to be more difficult for you, or at least feel more stressful and difficult. Instead of, say, like spending two years slowly accumulating knowledge of different foods that you haven't eaten before and maybe buy a vegan cookbook or two, eat some vegetarian meals at restaurants. Yeah, I think it's not only does your willpower catch up to your intellect, but your knowledge of the abundance of food that you have access to gets bigger too. Because I feel like a lot of people who aren't vegan look at vegan diets as like you only eat salads. Yeah. It, they, like they kind of limit what it is because they're not aware of, I don't know, nutritional yeast. There's so many things that they don't know about. Mm-hmm. So if you just thrust yourself into that, you're probably going to be having that same mindset of, you know, you want to be vegan, but you still think that vegans only eat salads. So now you're only eating salads and that's a hard thing to do for your whole life. Yeah. For anyone. Yeah. yeah it's a deprivation, right? Yeah. And so if you have limited options or limited ideas of the options, yeah, that's, that's tough. Yeah. And just the jarring to go from A to B, like, you know, from night to day and like a standard American diet to vegan diet, 
is jarring for me i don't know about you like when i went vegan it wasn't i didn't feel better i don't think i've felt any difference yeah me neither. a lot of people talk about these amazing benefits like oh i can run marathons now and i like i feel so much cleaner i I don't know i feel the same that i've always felt i think i may have told i think i told you but like i actually felt after about a month in, I felt, felt angry. I, oh. Well, I was just like pissed, you know? I, was just like, <laughs> I don't know. There was like cravings, right? There was oh, cravings yeah, yeah. for things I wanted. And it was, uh, and then I was still kind of wrestling with some of the questions. And that's, that's what I tend to do sometimes. And I had an unsettled, I it felt unsettled about the decision I had made. And I was craving like eggs. Yeah. And I did. I quit one day, one day at work. I just quit. I went out to eat for lunch and got an omelet. And then, uh, I remember I went back to one of the videos that was really important for me, very formative for me, the Gary Yurofsky video. Is that the one hour, like the best speech you'll ever yeah. hear one? Yeah. yeah, I went back to that because his approach was helpful for me. It was just like no nonsense. Like, here's the truth. Like, what are you going to do? Like, yeah. you have an obligation to do this. So like, just do it. And that that helped me. And it's just like, you have some lingering questions about veganism as a lifestyle. How coherent is it as a, as a diet and a philosophy? But I was kind of like, okay, I can figure that out in time or even maybe I never do. Right. But right now there's certain things I know that I should do and therefore really, I think have to do. So you just have to do it. Yeah. That's kind of how I got back on board. But you said you were still like wrestling with some questions after making that decision. Do you remember any kind of question that you or doubts you had going into it when you started? Sure. Yeah. A big one was B12. For me, me it was, um, and this will probably come up later, but like I really like to think about veganism in terms of some people don't like to ask the question about how natural something is. Yeah. I enjoy and uh, I think it's very important to ask that question. And so to me, I was thinking like, well, if we were just living a vegan diet, but it leads to a, a crucial deficiency, is it actually a natural human diet? Is it something that we should be doing? And the deficiency is vitamin B12, which is is tough to get in pretty much any non-animal source. I think there might be a few. I I, I used to keep up with the studies about like seaweed and things. Yeah, there, no, there's, there's some promising. There's seaweed and there's um that stuff that grows on ponds and lakes. Algae. Duckweed. Oh, okay. Yeah, high in B12. Yeah. Not really something people eat though. Yeah, exactly. Especially in like the Midwest. But yeah. like, yeah, I think that was troubling to me where I was thinking like this is something I want to do, and if I'm going to do it. Because when I actually became vegetarian a year prior, it was like I knew that it was a lifelong choice. Yeah. And it wasn't just like, I'm going to try this out as a diet and see how it goes. It was like, this is actually a decision I'm making on the basis of like ethical reasoning. This is something, it's a lifestyle I'm adopting. So I felt the same way about veganism, perhaps even more so. And then if it's not natural and it doesn't like fit together, it, it seemed like it was lacking. It was lacking something, like I said, coherence earlier, or even like, like a lack of elegance even maybe, you know, it was just like, it, it was off putting to me, but I eventually got over it. I said, well, this is what I have to do. And then I was also thinking like the counter argument from the vegans on B12 is like, we've like fundamentally altered the world. Right. Oh yeah. With sanitation. And you know, I'm thinking, well, and I, I don't know all the science on how to acquire B12. Right. So take it with a grain of salt. But I just was thinking at that time, you know, if I was living a more natural lifestyle, I probably actually would be getting a lot more B12 than I'm getting right. now, like through my feet and like so listener. being in the dirt and <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's like, I don't live a natural lifestyle as it is in the year 2015 at that yeah, time. So. That's true. So um, listener, if you're not familiar, the, I guess, natural argument for how we would have or used to get B12 as humans is that 
animals right now get B12 through eating foliage, you know, vegetables that are unwashed, so they have dirt on them. B12 is a bacteria that can be found in soil. So these animals are eating all of this stuff that's got dirt on it. They get B12 and it goes into their stomachs and it resides there. And then when you eat the flesh of a cow or a goat, there's some B12 in its muscles. And the way that we used to get it as humans was just through eating plants, just, you know, pull a, some cabbage out of the ground and eat it, and it's got B12 on it. Nowadays, we hyper wash and sanitize everything, partially because we have to, because we cover everything with pesticides. So now that we wash all these vegetables so much, we wash off all of the beneficial B12 that used to be on it, or would have been on it. So yeah, if you're living in a more natural way, you probably wouldn't be washing your spinach. You'd probably get B12 a lot more easily. Well, and it cuts both ways. So for someone who's a meat eater who eats other animal products, a lot of them are eating animal products from animals who have been taking B12 supplements themselves, right? Yes. So like the the way we've altered agriculture and our modern lifestyle affects both vegans and, you know, yeah. meat eaters as alike. So the, the answer for veganism is similar to the answer that it is for um, perhaps a lot of people who eat a standard diet is that you supplement. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. As a vegan, you supplement directly. And as a meat eater, your meat is getting supplemented. Yes. And that helped me. That helped me. And also just realizing, you know, like I can get hung up on a million different things on any topic. And if those things distract me from what, if, if these kind of peripheral points of confusion distract me from what's central and most clear and obvious, then something's wrong. Yeah. Right. And then if I use that as a justification to avoid making a choice, I feel conviction that my conscience tells me I need to take, then it's actually inexcusable is how I felt. Right. And so that helped me get over that. I mean, all those little points about supplementing and the modern world. And then that last ethical point kind of helped me get over that and just say, no, this is what I have to do. So, yeah. B12 isn't even something I thought about for like a year of being vegan. I don't know. I was kind of like, oh, people are overreacting. Like I, I can just get B12 through whatever. Um, Cause it's in like traces and, and stuff. I think in nutritional yeast, it's in traces. Um, yep. So I was like, I'll, I'll be fine. And then after a year, I was like, oh, what's the harm in just making sure I'm eating B12 vitamins? It's like, I don't know, an extra $10 every couple of months to buy supplements. And I read a study too, or maybe multiple studies, that were showing that in the modern world, even people who are eating the standard American diet are mostly deficient on B12. So it's not just vegans. It's like just the average American is B12 deficient. Yeah. So really everybody should probably be supplementing B12, whether you eat meat or not. Yeah, I think that and vitamin D are both like, yeah. just like you should be doing it. Because a lot of people have trouble absorbing it, you know, and like I think to my knowledge, if correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe we do produce it in our body, but it's below our, it's like in our colon, it's in our lower gut. Yeah. So it's it's too low to actually be uh, absorbed through the stomach, yeah. if I'm correct. Yeah, but yeah, it's something that it, you know, and I think it is a unique issue for vegans, but it is something that affects the wider population. And I think... Uh, to me, it's just like, you know, I even hesitate bringing it up like this early in the podcast because it's something that's like an easy target at, against veganism. But hopefully I've produced like good counter arguments because I think it's, it's good because anybody a, listening who immediately wants to attack veganism with a B12 argument, because that's yes. an easy one, and, you know, get it out of the way right immediately. Of course. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it is ultimately a non-issue. Yeah. For me. So I think a lot of the, I guess, counter arguments about or toward veganism end up kind of being non-issues. Or things that end up seeming to me like silly, like I don't know what what's another uh, common con counter argument that people use against veganism. Oh boy! Did you have any other ones when you were uh, 
No, because most of them, like, there's an easy, there is the one about the omega-3s. Oh, yeah, that's one. um, But, like, we, you know, most people at least have the ability to, well, anyways, there's a certain type of omega-3 fatty acid, right? DHA, maybe? Maybe. That's unavailable in non-animal sources. But if you have the other one, you know, maybe we could put a note below the the, uh, podcast or something. But I forget, if you get the other omega-3, your body can transfer, translate that into the other one. So, it's like that that was an issue you know there's stuff like iron but that's like fundamentally a non a lot of them are just like they're totally off base you know yeah so it was really the b12 one for me and um yeah did you have any i'm driving obstacles oh when i was um going vegan what did i think i don't know i do remember (laughs) i do remember like you i there was at least one one cheat that i did that i didn't feel good about like you said you were craving eggs so you went out and got an omelet yeah yeah i guess in the beginning when you're making that transition it's kind of hard to maintain your conviction but over time i feel like it gets easier and easier so at first that i was like i was working at a grocery store i think and there were these like cookies or something that had like dairy in them that they were really delicious and i was like oh you know that wasn't even worth doing yeah and then i stopped but yeah when i was going vegan I guess for me, it was, I always knew that I wanted to do, I went vegetarian with the goal of actually going vegan later and I wanted to be vegetarian for a full year, but then I was kind of like feeling more and more hypocritical by the day. Like I knew that in my mind, I knew that consuming like dairy and eggs was unethical, but I was doing it anyway with the idea that I would stop doing it in the future. And then I just decided to not be vegetarian for a full year and just to say, I'm going to be vegan today. And I was like, it was a good day to do it because it was World Vegan Day, which isn't even a real holiday, but it appears on some calendars. So that was the day I decided, no, I'm just going to cut this vegetarian experiment short and just go straight to the vegan thing because I was feeling like I wasn't living up to my own moral code. But I don't remember having a whole lot of doubts about it after the fact. I suppose maybe like some minor health things. And I suppose between like ethics or environment or health, health is always the side of it that I've felt the least like solid in a lot of people like to claim that being vegan is the healthiest diet that you can have i'm not so sure about that i feel like there's lots of healthy diets you can have i feel like the standard american diet is definitely unhealthy and there's lots of ways to improve upon that and there's a lot of conflicting stories people i know that seem to be feeling the best they've ever felt in their lives and they're you know they're not vegan so it it show it throws for me some doubt on some of the health claims that some vegans make which is why i like to put all of my emphasis or most of my emphasis on the ethical reasons to go vegan i feel like those are the strongest ones the environmental reasons are pretty strong too i feel like with health the pattern though is that in general the more you can limit meat and other animal products the better at least i mean from my limited knowledge so like and if someone's feeling better eating like the carnivore diet or just like a high meat diet or just a standard or whatever type of diet that incorporates meat i mean i think like well, one, it's obviously anecdotal. It's also like very right. short term, right? But if you study things like longevity and I don't know, I, I just think um, I, I enjoy it. It's kind of referenced a lot, but that Blue Zone book, you familiar with that? No, I don't think I've heard of that Areas one. of the planet where they're um, very, very high, uh, heightened levels of uh, centenarians, people living past oh. 100 and just extreme longevity. And they studied the diet and lifestyle and community patterns of people in those places. I don't think any of them are like full-blown vegans, except for some of the Seventh-day Adventists out yeah. in California. But in all those places, it's it's like extreme, you know, the amount of calories coming from meat and animal products is like 
much, much less than what we have here. And then in places like California with the Adventists, where they have some who are full-blown vegans, some are vegetarians, some eat like incorporate meat. It was always the healthiest ones were the ones that ate less and less of those yeah. products. So I think, I think that is a, but then again, it's like, if you get stuck into like a health or, um, you know, a competition of citing medical studies and stuff like that, <laughs> it's just like, you know, unless you're spending a lot of time in that, I try to avoid it too, because, yeah. you know, it's like if someone can score points on you by showing something that you weren't aware of, it's that might distract from the main issue. Yeah. I've seen a lot of that. Like I remember, um, Joe Rogan had that guy on, I can't remember who was director or producer of uh, the game changers. Yeah. And they were just kind of like bickering back and forth about health claims. And I don't know, a lot of it seemed like they were kind of ignoring the bigger issues and they were like talking about how to read forest plots. Yes. Do you remember that guy's name? Well, the other guy is, I think, Chris Kresser. Chris and Kresser. I forgot the name of the vegan, the guy who directed the Game Changers. I forgot his name, but yeah. Because Kresser was on first, like, critiquing Game Changers. Yeah. And then the director came on, and he was the one, like, trying to score big points. And yeah. I think a lot of people, Rogan himself, thought that he did. But yeah, I thought it was off. Yeah, it, it kind of made, made me feel weird. Yeah. Like, it's, it seemed like he was just trying to ruin Chris Kresser's, like, I don't know, reputation, rather than the actual backing up the argument of veganism. I agree with you. Yeah. You, in his, def in his defense, he probably feels like Kresser was trying to destroy his entire, uh, yes, he was getting back his at professional <laughs> career as well. So, so I can understand that, but I don't know, you know, I felt like earlier, like you were asking about other objections that people have against yeah. veganism. And like one that is common is protein, right? Oh yeah. Which is another Where one to me. It's like stupid, but, uh, I don't know. Like, I, I do think it's stupid. Um, you can get protein from plenty of sources. And it's it's kind of like the same thing. There are lots of people on the standard American diet who are, you know, anemic, not getting enough iron or protein deficient. These deficiencies span all diets. And if you actually try to get your nutrients, you can on a vegan diet or whatever diet. But one thing that I found interesting, I think I mentioned this in the last episode, so I'm not going to go into it for more than a few seconds, but is this study... Well, there's this research institute, I guess, that's looking into aging and how to reverse or at least slow down aging. And one of the ways is to have restricted protein, to not to be not hitting the like standard level of protein that is normally like doctors would say you should get. To get less than that, it actually prevents aging, at least so far they've shown. Yeah, there's a good book I read by, uh, I think it's Dr. Garth Davis, Proteinaholic, and he focused mainly on animal protein. There's, It's a pretty complex, it's a multifaceted argument he lays out, but I, I do recall like a similar basic idea. We're overdoing protein. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, there's some, it's like a meat culture that people, to be manly, you got to eat lots of meats, got to get all your meat from, or got to get all your protein from meats, got to have dairy all the time, all the got milk commercials. People widely believing that osteoporosis is linked to lack of milk rather than how it seems to be the exact opposite way around, yeah, yeah. where osteoporosis is actually linked to overconsumption of milk. Yeah, that's ridiculous. I feel like we've got it backwards in a lot of ways in yeah. the U.S. of what you should be eating. Yeah. Well, and like the protein thing, too, it's just like if you look at some of like our models for like, uh, for like, I don't know, like professional athletes or whatever is presented to us as like an ideal, healthy, strong male body. It's something that it usually pertains to like a particular line of work. Like if you're an NFL wide receiver, you need to be told, I mean, you, you're going to look different than someone who's just living a life, you know, a professional life, like the rest of the 98% of us. Right. Yeah. And to me, when I see a lot of people, a lot of people want to get big and big. It's like, they're literally, when I see their bodies, I mean, a lot of 
look swollen. They look inflamed. Yeah. Sometimes. Well, yeah, it, it is literal swelling. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't know, the guys who can't really move their arms that well because, you yeah. know, and it's just like, well, okay, so how is this health and strength and wellness, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The ideal image of like a bodybuilder or maybe not even that extreme, but just your average guy who goes to the gym every day and is trying to get jacked. It looks to me kind of like weirdly unnatural. Yes. You've got these gigantic biceps and like huge shoulders. It seems like it's harder to function with like the lifting arms difficulty. Yeah. 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 I remember the first time I actually like really tried working out in high school. I was doing a bunch of um, some sort of lifts with, with weights. And I was really surprised because the next day when I went to school, I couldn't raise my arms like higher than like 45 degrees below my shoulders. Mm hmm. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't raise them any higher. And I didn't realize that was a thing that happened because I guess your muscles are destroyed and they're regenerating. So in the one to four days after you work out, they're just non-functioning. You can't use them. For sure. And guys are just destroying their muscles over and over every day. Like that just seems like it makes your everyday life a little bit more difficult Yeah. when you're that muscular. And I think even if you're dead set on that, like you mentioned game changers and some of these other, other there are people out there who are, like, can break the myth. You can get, you can get totally jacked yeah, on a vegan can, diet if you want, yeah. you know, it's actually pretty easy. It's really easy, but like, still looks weird though. Yeah. But you can do it on a vegan diet. Yeah, yeah. I still think it's good to kind of attack those, those expectations and those cultural ideas, but I don't know. And to me, it's just like, this would be like where I think about, um, some of these things again, kind of become like there's a lot of things that can divert our focus from the essential point. Right. Yeah. So if you get into like a discussion about protein, not only is it just kind of, uh, I think it's off base and it's misguided and there's a lot of, you know, false assumptions, but it's like, you know, is that the core issue? And it's like, to me, it's a real shame that if you have something like, you know, perhaps I'm biased by my own experience, but the idea of like, this is actually a question of a, a lifestyle of how you want to actually respect other, you know, animals, right. Other living beings. And then if we get that, if we uh, can somehow get sidetracked in a discussion about protein or iron or omega-3s, to me, I think those are valuable questions. But it's just like, well, how does that in any way mitigate the responsibility that I have? Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think they're valuable questions that you should probably ask after understanding and accepting the main point. Yes. Like, yeah, you can look into that stuff once you realize that you probably should go vegan rather than arguing about them before doing that like use, using that as your argument against veganism rather than veganism itself first yeah and then worrying about the details after the fact i feel like people yeah like you're saying people are trying to argue with you the minutia and avoiding arguing the main point so i feel like we should do that cool what would you say is the main point of being vegan yeah for me the main point is actually it's a it's a question about it's a question of propriety, as I see it. It's a question about what's the proper treatment of other living beings, in this case, animals, right? What, is the, uh, what are the obligations and responsibilities that I have towards them? Um, we tend to approach animals with like a question of, of rights. What right do I have? Um, how can I use this thing for my own benefit? You know, how can I use this to make money or whatever the case might be? But I think if we look at those, and it, perhaps I've never been a real pet person, but I think people who have a pet can realize, even like a dog, a dog has, is a complex creature. It's a complex animal. And we know that our relationship towards a dog shouldn't be just of what rights, how can I treat it? What are the uh, permissible ways for me uh, 
to to handle and interact with this dog. In fact, most people who have a dog, they love it deeply, right? And their questions are usually like, what responsibilities do I have towards that dog? Um, how I ought to care for it, how I ought to provide for it, how I actually love it. And so to me, that is the essential question. And that's where, for, as I approach this whole thing, <clears throat> you know, and the more I think about it is just, uh, there's a lot of approaches. And so, and with respect to like your experience, I would say some approaches are tend to be like very consequentialist, right? So if I make this decision, what positive or negative effects would follow from it, right? And to me, I would say those considerations are secondary. Those considerations are secondary. If you have something that should be done, then you would do it. Now, if you can do it with like the least possible negative effects, you should weigh that into consideration, right? But if you have something you should do, then you should choose that for its own sake. And so I think a lot of the consequentialist arguments for veganism, like environmentalism or health or like you name it, I think that on their own, they're insufficient. And I think the person who, you know, so I think as you described it, like you, as you got into it, you learned more, right? And yeah. Yeah. So it's like, because if you make it solely for the environment, well, then what if we can somehow create a system within, within which animal agriculture doesn't negatively affect the environment? Right. Or what if it actually helps the environment? Yeah. And which then in you're, some cases then you're stuck. Does. Then you're stuck and you have no argument for veganism anymore. Yeah. And so because you actually, someone in that situation hasn't chosen veganism, they've chosen environmentalism, environmentalism yeah. right? Or they've chosen health. But then what happens when uh, they get sick and then they wonder if it's their diet and then they give up the diet or, you know, the vegan diet because it's no longer in their mind leading to health. So I think it's important to, and I, I think um, I would probably reframe it more in terms of the, uh, and you know these terms, right? It's like a deontological it's yeah. like a more duty-based approach or act-based instead of a results-based. Um, so like deontological doesn't ask like what are the results. Deontology doesn't ask what the results of an action are. They ask what the appropriate action that, that we have a duty to make actually is. And so to me, that would be how I approach it. And um, I think the more we could actually promote that message, the better it'd be for veganism. Because it creates stronger, it creates more principled, well, actually it turns veganism into more of a principle in its own right. I have a video I'm working on right now that's a critique of uh, deontology. Really? But, <laughs> yeah, but you should let me know what you think of that one when I make it. But yeah, I mean, I think that knowing what the right thing to do is first and then maximizing the benefit or minimizing the suffering that comes after. I agree with that. I just, this is maybe a sidetrack on deontology. I just feel like when you are asking the question of, what is the right act to do? I think implicit in that is what are the results of that act? You know, like, I don't, I don't think you can actually survey your possibility of acts to do without also thinking of what outcome they lead to. It might just be thinking of the outcome in different terms. If you're a consequentialist, you might be thinking outcome first and act second. But as a deontologist, I think you're still putting the consequence on a pretty high pedestal because if you envision a world where like nobody lies you're still think you're still valuing that world higher because of like the world that gets created instead of saying like this harms or benefits individual person a it harms or benefits the state of the world so i think it's still viewing the action in terms of what kind of result that action has am i thinking of that wrong do you think that's valid? No, I think sometimes that is a part of it. And I think sometimes that actually should be. A, I, I wouldn't be a strict deont 
deontologist. Actually, yeah. I would incline more towards the Catholic understanding of morality, which considers things like the person's own intention. Right. So like what they're actually hoping to get. And it also considers external circumstances, which includes uh, consequences. Yeah. But it would it would always say that you can never do something evil in order because to of get country. positive consequences. Right. Yeah. But I would say like in response to what you just said, I would say, well, what about a situation when doing something like, let's say, loving, caring, protecting animals actually leads to a negative result so that'd be a way of testing that out because yeah i think even when we think about in terms of our duty when we think deontologically we do consider consequences but imagine a thought experiment in which doing something that like i'm arguing would possibly be a duty yeah like not killing and using and harming animals what if that thing led to negative consequences like what if it actually had a marginally negative effect on the environment would you still be in favor or of that? Or what if you died six months earlier on average? I suppose the, yeah, you dying, that's like a self-sacrifice, which I think typically is a noble thing to do. But if it's harming like the world at large, if, if you're doing a thing that is perceived as a good action, like loving, and somehow it has some negative consequence on the world as a whole, do you still think that's a, that you should do that act? I think there's a certain point at which you probably should not, right? Yeah. Um, I do. And, you know, I, I don't think I would not place animals equal to and certainly not sub above humans. Yeah. Right. So if, if we're doing something that's destroying our health, if like showing concern, practical concern for animals is destroying your health, there is a certain point at which I think you would have to like reconsider that. Yeah. But I think part of it is that it's not just like some duty in the Kantian sense. Like you sit down and think about like what ideal world you want to have. It's actually something that lines up with the natural law. So like, you know, to me, I would say animal products are not human food. It goes contrary to the nature of animals and humans. And we can see that in the fact that like humans, to my knowledge, are the only ones who the only animals who eat animals that get atherosclerosis. Right. And we're the, we're the only ones that die from it. We die from it like nonstop every day. And I would say, therefore, is that actually natural part of our diet? You know, and if you examine, I think there are, I think there is a good argument when they look about the intestines and our teeth, our natural instincts, our total lack of ability to capture and kill prey um, outside of tool making, right? I think these are strong arguments. And I think the fact that if you look at an animal too, I would say, if a lion tears apart a zebra, that's a separate issue. But when I look at a, a zebra or let's say a cow or a pig, I can see that like a, or a chicken, like a chicken's leg, the purpose of that leg is to help the chicken walk. That's the natural function of it. Right. And I would say we've somehow perverted that function. We perverted the actual law and order of nature by making that chicken's leg like our food, especially when we have no natural instinct or ability or capability or need or actual benefit of doing it. Right. So we, we lack all those things. In fact, it also harms us. So it's against our nature. I think those even just reinforce the idea that it's against the nature of a chicken to be human food. How about the like hunter-gatherer societies that seem like they depended on meat to survive because there wasn't enough wild foliage around to eat? Yeah, well, I mean, if there's a if there's a situation in which you actually need it, then it, it alters the entire it it alters the entire uh, so question. The, right? Okay, so the need in your the situation you find yourself in that's what is important. Yeah, well, I, mean, I would agree with that. I, in my life, do not need to consume animal products to survive or even to be happy. And a lion does. Like, they, they do need to con like consume animal products. So it, but then if I were a hunter-gatherer living in 120,000 BC, 
I might need to eat animals to survive. So then would you say that changes the like morality of the action? If I did need it, does that make it okay? It changes the morality of it for sure. Yeah. Yes. And I, I think if you or I like had a kid or something and our kid was dying and uh, the only way to save our kid's life is to, uh, to slaughter a pig or something, you know what I mean? Yeah. And we didn't do it. I think that'd be entirely blameworthy. Yeah. You know, no matter how well-intentioned it is, no matter how much you love pigs in the animal kingdom, like your duty as a father is to protect your kid, you know? And I would say perhaps, you know, even I'd extend that even further to humanity at large. So I think we have a, a more fundamental obligation to other humans than we do to animals. Yeah. Um, but, but they are kind of, it's kind of a moot point. I mean, a hunter gatherer, we are so far removed yeah, from that where it's like, this anymore. is one of those thought experiments that becomes, it's becomes the minutia that distracts, right? It is the minutia. Yeah. Although there are some different, some other interesting things that are still modern in, in that uh, example that I can go into later if you want. Um, but one thing that does get thrown at me occasionally by non-vegans as some sort of critique or whatever, it's this like popular straw man idea that non-vegans have about vegans is that we value them higher or equally to humans. For instance, like if there is one pig or one human that were under threat of dying and I could save one of them, like to me, like a non-vegan would think to me, it wouldn't matter which one lives or I would choose the pig even. Like, of course I would choose the human, except I think the, the distinction that maybe a vegan has versus a non-vegan is that while these animals might be lower on the hierarchy of care, they're still higher than that line of what should we think is okay to kill. Like, I would rather save a human than a pig, but I still care about a pig enough to not want it to die or to to treat it well and to make sure it's happy and living. And for some reason, that's something that a lot of people don't seem to grasp or agree with. They think it's like all or nothing, either treat it as a human or it's useless. Well, and I agree with that too. I, I think we can have um, gradations. We can even have a hierarchical understanding of different, you know, if we're animals too, right? Yeah. You and I were animals. So we can have a hierarchical understanding of the animal kingdom. We could even afford, and I actually, hopefully we'll get it. I'm going to argue that we should have a uniquely dignified place at the top. <laughs> I'm a full-blown speciesist. And I think, because I think it's true um, and I think it's good and right. But that being said, you can, that doesn't mean that you therefore have to then exploit and abuse and destroy other animals yeah. that are below you on the hierarchy. Right. You know, I think there is a case and you, you'll get it from some people on the political right though, that will they say like, if you're vegan, but like you're pro-choice, I think there's something to be said there where it's like, we're destroying ourselves in mass quantities every day, you know, and then we're supporting it and we're arguing for it as a fundamental right. There's a case to be made there. It's inconsistency in veganism. It, Yeah, I think in certain ways, sometimes I think that way, that it is an inconsistency. But then other times I think that it's uh, there is a level of difference. I don't know how much we want to talk about abortion, but... A lot. <laughs> um, okay, so I would say there's still a distinction between not being born yet and being killed after you're born. So like, if your existence is stopped before you're born or after you're born, I think there is an important distinction there. Like one, you have like no experience or relatively no experience of what it's like to be alive and the other you now do have that experience. So I think once something has achieved, I guess, sentience or like self-sufficiency or not even self-sufficiency, just opening its eyes and using its brain and exper like experiencing the world around it, I think it's much more cruel to take that away from it than it is to say, stop something from being born in the first place. Do you disagree with that? No, I think 
yeah it's more harmful right so like if you're if you're alive right now and you have all these hopes and dreams and aspirations for your life it does seem like there's perhaps it's it's more it's more damaging to you and your person right than it is to kill someone who's unborn but i would also say what's the ultimate form of damage or hurt or harm that we can do to anyone it's to extinguish their existence right and that that applies in both cases so i would say the question is and veganism isn't just about reducing harm or reducing suffering and if we if we say that if you know it's oftentimes it's presented as if as if it is and i think that goes to the point i was making earlier about consequentialism i think that's just i think it's a trap i think it's faulty irrational thinking and so to me the question would be like it's more about the proper treatment of the animal and the same thing would apply to humans so if we advocate for avoiding use and exploitation and of course like harm and death towards animals yet we support death you know constant non-stop death of our own species as a right a fundamental right to me it's a flaw it's an inconsistency so the principle of veganism then isn't being applied consistently and i would say actually you know if you look at it if you actually grant the hierarchy you would say well why are you being so adamant and passionate and focused on something lower on the hierarchy than you are about those which are higher right so i'd say not only is it inconsistent but it's um you know, if, if they were at the same level, it would be merely inconsistent, but it's like something it's like highly and deeply flawed when you when you consider the fact that there are different levels of that hierarchy. Right. I think another aspect of it that I view as important is, I guess, the, the choice part of the pro-choice is this organism, this being, this human is inside of you, dependent on you. And I suppose like the pro-choice thing is just that the government shouldn't control your ability to do what you will with your unborn baby who is inside your own body not necessarily pro-abortion like for instance i don't really want abortions to happen but i also don't want them to be completely unable to happen if that makes any sense well it makes sense in that in so far as i understand the idea but it does not make moral sense oh i see okay <laughs> <laughs> so i mean do you want do you want slaughterhouses to be able to exist no Okay, but you do want abortions to be able to exist. So I think there is a difference between consent and like dependence that's there. Like I would be pro-choice if a, you know, animal could express to me that it wanted an abortion. I wouldn't be pro like I wouldn't say that you have the right to give an animal an abortion. You just like you don't have the right to give someone else an abortion. It's like the abortion consent right is only within the individual who is contemplating getting one. So like a slaughterhouse, you're just killing all these other all these other animals who have nothing to do with you, who would prefer to be alive, where with an abortion, only the person who the baby is dependent on is making the choice. And it should be perceived as a very heavy choice, not one to be taken lightly. Why is it heavy though? Because it has the potential to be what? A full fledged human being. An adult. No, it is a full fledged human being. Well, I mean, depending on the stage it's not. No, from the earliest point, it's genetically complete. It's distinct from its mother. I mean, it's its own human organism. So, like, there's arbitrary points. And I get what you're saying. Like, the idea that we wouldn't want to perform an abortion on an animal, like, against their consent, just like yeah. we wouldn't against a human. But I'd say that whole, that kind of moral analysis ignores the, the one who's actually being put to death. Well, it's, I think it's like the only person who should have any say in their being put to death is the person who is carrying them, who is their mother. What? I, I feel like if anybody has, has the right to kill a baby, it is the mother of that baby. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but I just don't think you want that to be like a quote, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Because because but his is if you if you follow this consistently, then you have to support infanticide. Well, I think which the, is what Peter Singer, the arch utilitarian, actually advocates for. He says the first yeah. couple years of life, the kids have no, they're barely sentient. They have no idea what's going on. You know, you, you kill them in their sleep, especially. You know, why not? Yeah, I it, definitely disagree with him there. I think um, once they're born, then they're no longer really dependent on their mother anymore. Like a newborn baby is not. Yeah, not. I mean, it's dependent on something. It's dependent on another, and it's dependent on an adult to raise them, but not their mother. You know what I'm saying? You could give a newborn baby to a different human being to raise. So once it exists, once it's been born, I don't think it's anymore the mother's right to do anything with it because just if the mother doesn't want it, that's what adoption is for. You can give it away. Somebody else can raise it. So the mother-baby relationship is not so strong anymore. They're not physically intertwined. But do you believe human life has like inherent value? Um, or the value is conferred by someone else's feelings or disposition. This is one th- place where we might disagree. Maybe a s- more like existentialist viewpoint. I don't know if there's, there's the inherent value as far as on the whole of everything that exists. Does any of it really have any value? The value definitely comes from your own feeling of existence. That's what I would say anyway, that I can experience life and feel like it has value. So. Might as well say that it does, but I don't know if, you know, a few week old zygote has any experience of living, whereas a freshly newborn baby certainly does. Yeah. So the value comes from the experience. Yeah. Do you think the value comes from elsewhere? Yeah, I think I think value is fun. It's like inherent and intrinsic to the human person. So I would say no matter what is going on in that person's own ex- existence, you know, if they're comatose, if they're severely mentally impaired if they are uh, extremely deformed or something like that, or if they're hated by the entire society or whatever the case might be, yeah. none of those have any bearing on its own value and dignity. And so I would say the second we start to actually chip away at that, we, we uh, you know, I think abortion ultimately says that human life has no meaning, right? The meaning is contingent upon my choice as a parent in this example, yeah. right? My choice of, at, towards, my attitude towards that child is what gives it value. So if I want it, it's my precious baby, right? If I don't, it's, uh, you know, whatever, totally expendable, disposable. So I think that's a, that's a damaging attitude. And I think if you apply that then further down the chain, we could say, well, and this is where I think the objection actually has some merit. So most vegans, would they be uncompromising about the destruction of any animal life, right? Maybe. Well, mostly. You could say like the deserted island or like the, the scenario we said right. earlier, your kid's dying or something, right? But- They'd say it's it's kind of a pretty black and white moral philosophy, but I'd say, well, then why is that? Because if there's no value to human life, there's certainly no value to to a dog's life, right? Well, I mean, or if you pig. if you take the value from the experience, the dog is still having an experience, whereas you know a leaf is not so much having an experience. Sure, but what about so? What about dogs in the womb? Yeah, I mean, I think not so much. I still think it's not your place to abort that dog because it's not you're not the mother of it. That's like one step removed from a level of consent that I find permissible mm-hmm. because you don't even know if the dog's mother wants it or the children that are to be aborted. Mm-hmm. Where with just, you know, human abortion, you're one step closer. You know, obviously the child has no say, but the, the mother does. You're not forcing the mother to have it. So I feel like that makes the uh, dog babies less abortable than human babies in an odd way. Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, we don't know what experience dogs have or pigs or cows, right? Yeah, and I don't know ex- what kind of experience you have 
Oh, exactly. That's why it's, I think it's faulty. It's dangerous to, to base the value or worth or dignity of something on experience. Well, I can assume that your experience is similar to mine based off yeah. your similarities to me. And then, you know, dog similarities to me. They're not that different. Well, then what about someone whose experience is severely impaired? I mean, there's still A some... human being. Yeah. They so, have less value? Well, no, I, I wouldn't say there's like the value is uh gradient depending on how much experience they have. Just like if the experience is there, then the value is at maximum. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But the the unborn child is in the process of gaining experience every moment they're working towards that fuller experience just like just like a two-year-old is working towards greater and greater experience in their adolescence and adulthood so we're all we're all on a scale right yeah a gradual scale so i'd say like on that on that scale you could i mean where do you draw the line and if you draw it becomes becomes basically arbitrary i don't know i'm not as gung-ho pro-choice as lots of other people but because i would uh get more and more uncomfortable with it the closer the baby is to being born for instance if it's like a really early term abortion and i don't know maybe the the mother is poor and knows that her child is gonna have a bad life and it's going to make her life even worse make her continue to be poor get even poorer that's you know one thing and then if the baby is like third trimester or whatever close to being born it's like a fully formed baby now it's not like you know early very early stage like bunch of cells that don't even have limbs yet kind mm-hmm. of thing i think there's gradients along the whole way that it becomes less and less okay to get an abortion like if you are very very pregnant and you want an abortion then i would say just have the baby and put it up for adoption afterwards because you're right i, I do think there is a point where i would say you have to make a near arbitrary distinction of what makes it abortable and when it gets to full-fledged baby a few weeks away from being born, then it's uh, not so okay anymore. Yeah, so I would say, like, why even chance it? So if it's, it's the fun, if it's basically the same thing from the moment of conception until the moment of death, it's just in a process of greater and greater development and maybe some decline at the end, right? But it's in a process of increased and increasing development. And so, therefore, we don't know where to draw the line if we base it on experience, you know? And, and then how do you define experience? So if a fetus can feel pain, is that experience? Well, they don't have like an intense first person awareness yeah. of their world, but we know they feel pain at a very early point. So is that the point or is it earlier? Is it heartbeat or is it, well, I'd say, well, it's the same thing. Genetically, it's a human being, right? It has the same qualities and attributes. It has the same value and worth at least, right? And it has the same, in a latent form, it has the same qualities and attributes as well those qualities are gradually expressed and they're more, they're manifested in a greater way as their life unfolds. Right. But I would say <laughs> we're in no position to do that. You know, it's like if there's a wall right here and I don't know if the person, there's a person behind it or not. And I say, I have a gun and I say, well, I really want to shoot the gun. Should I shoot it at the wall? Or let's say it's a cardboard box. Well, no. Why? There's a possibility of the human being behind it. Yes. So I'd say even granting like everything you're saying about the experience conferring the value upon the human being, since we don't know when that begins, what you're advocating for is like shooting into the cardboard box, giving people the right to do that. Yeah. But I I still think that cardboard box example, it's like the relationship between people, I think is an important aspect of it because it's not like the person behind the cardboard box is, you know, connected to your placenta, your child that you're body is currently forming it's like a stranger that you don't know who it could be but i think that intimate relationship makes it even more uh it makes it even more paramount not to shoot into the box because that 
you have a you have a unique obligation towards that person or towards that entity. Let's say we don't know if it's a person yet or not yeah. or worthy of protection. But that doesn't give you more right. It actually gives you more of a responsibility. Well, it's the, yeah, I think... The, of protection and care. Right. The increased responsibility should make that decision much more important and stressful and a much bigger decision. I feel as though people who get abortions is probably one of the biggest decisions they'll make in their life. And a lot of the times they probably aren't happy with like they're they're not happy either way with it it's a bad decision it's a bad circumstance to be in and it's because they feel some sort of motherly care towards it they, they feel like you know this is their baby but i feel like the, the the very fact that it's their baby and there's that motherly care there makes them the only person on earth who is able to make the decision and i feel like taking that decision away from people can lead to bad things like in many circumstances where I suppose there could be a, a, a world where we have laws that say abortions are okay under these circumstances, but not these ones. But I just find that world a lot less likely to exist than one that just says abortions are generally okay. For instance, I don't think people should get abort- or should be forced to have their babies if they are rape babies, for instance. Do you have any feelings on that one? Well, I would say, does someone's action alter the value or worth of the person in this case, the unborn child. Does a, does a third party's action in any way affect your value as a human being? It certainly will affect your life if your mother uh, resents you for existing. Therefore, you should be killed? Well, should someone be... That's f- a possibility too, by the way, right? The, the possibility you'd live your whole life being resented by your mother. Sure, we possibly. don't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, okay, so you've got that question. I've got a counter question. Sure. Should somebody be forced to live with a embodiment of their a crime that happened to them for the rest of their life should they be forced Uh, to give birth to something that they didn't even choose to make happen no they should be prevented from killing it so then it just rape babies are born and then just given away to adoption i mean that was happening oh yeah or i mean there's lots of stories of people who are rape (laughs) children who are conceived in rape who are raised by their mother and their mother loves them because that's their kid yeah that's what mothers do yeah right that does They, they love their kids usually we hope but yeah, I would say that the value of the person cannot be based on any other contingent fact, like what someone else did, what someone else thinks, what they're even they're even their own experience of the lot of this world, right? Because we know our experience of the world varies throughout our life. You you undergo cognitive decline at the end of your life. Is your value and worth decreasing, diminishing? Well, we actually we kind of act like it does, right? And um, as we're seeing the spread of more like permissive legislation about euthanasia, right? But to me, I think that suffers from the same basic error, that value is conditional. And so, if, we, if, we, if we grant that, then we can make a million concessions to all these other people who have all sorts of definitions about what those conditions are, right? And actually, then there's no more any argument for veganism at all. Because if those can be applied to humans, they can be applied to animals in spades. There's no reason not to kill. There's no reason not to, not to eat the standard American diet. There's no reason just to do whatever you want with animals or the humans. I don't know if I fully agree with that, but I will say that I think the abortion argument is something that it's been it's prompted a lot of thought because it does seem sometimes like it's like you're saying not quite consistent with uh, the ideas of veganism. Yeah. Like on the one hand, you're uh, against death in all its forms and on the other hand, you admit it in some circumstances. It is something that makes me uncomfortable, but what makes me a little bit more uncomfortable is that mothers are uh, restricted of doing what they want with their uh, unborn children. <laughs> I, I feel like I, I feel like with the role as mother, 
becomes enough responsibility that you can make decisions that are, uh, I don't know, resulting in the end of your baby's life before, before birth. But why before birth and not after? Well, like I was saying before, like the, the mother role is no longer so important after birth. Well, it, it tends to be. You know, you could also say before birth, pretty soon we're going to have the ability to do surrogacy and these kids can be like incubated or something like that. Right? Oh, yeah. And then, then so even, even more even reason. Even before birth, it would be altered. Right. Even then more reason not to have an abortion, I suppose, if you can do that. Like if you can say extract your fetus from your body and still keep it intact in an incubation facility, then that's even like that's like even more reason for abortions not to exist. And I feel like that's probably a future path that will make abortions less and less common in the future is just the ability to safely extract them from mothers who don't want them. Yeah, but I would say it's, there's still a real problem here because you're saying that if the child is within the womb, then the mother has a unique role, a new, unique relationship with, the, with yeah. the unborn child, right? Yeah. But I'd say that that relationship is one that is predicated upon care. That The womb should be the safest place on planet Earth for that kid. That's the only place the kid can be until we advance yeah. In those aforementioned ways with science, which I hope we never do, actually. It's <laughs> grotesque. But until that until that day, the womb is the only place that that kid can be, and it's supposed to be the safest place. Don't you see how it's a fundamental denial? A fundamental denial of the parent's responsibility to then thwart that kid's entire existence, to destroy it, to make it actually the most dangerous place? Well, I just think that great responsibility brings with it a unique choice, decision. like it A choice to... like If... You to shirk the responsibility? Yes. Yeah. No, but that's not how responsibility works, though, right? Right. Either, either you, the fact that you are the only one with this responsibility also means you can deny that responsibility. Yeah, but if it's a responsibility, it's something you ought to do, which is how you've said a couple of times how this is such a difficult decision because yeah. it, we all know intuitively what the proper choice is, right? And then, but we live in a society where sadly this has become such a common choice and we all have been affected by it in some way, either in our own lives people we care about it like let's just be honest right we all know people that this whole it's an industry by the way has affected and like in many cases like severely damaged a lot of lives and ended a lot of lives too right so that clouds our judgment in thinking about this right but we know we know that it's wrong which is why it's such a difficult decision that's why it's so painful that's why it's traumatic i just think the alternative is frequently wrong too of having a kid and like supporting life and not killing people <laughs> well yeah for instance no if people are forced to keep their babies and let's let's say like even if this world you could only get abortions in the first eight weeks of baby life after that you can't if people are forced to keep their babies that keeps people poor poor people are disproportionately the ones that would be getting abortions and then without those abortions now there's another person in their family that they have to pay for, it denies upward social mobility. It's kind of like the way it seems to be happening is that pro-life is maybe unintentionally, maybe intentionally, a mechanism to deny social change, keeping the lower classes lower classes, because those are the ones who are having more unintended children. So the more unintended children they have, the more disorganized and in poverty their households are, where the people who have the luxury of choosing when to have children can have them when they, you know, their Roth, their Roth IRAs are looking good and they've got their career on track and they're, and they're 35 years old instead of a 16 year old girl who's living in the city. And then having a child will probably ruin her life. Having an abortion might also ruin her life 
both options kind of suck. Yeah, but only one involves an action that's uh, gravely evil and immoral. Having a kid is never evil. It might be hard and stressful, and it might be it might be stressful in ways that you and I can never imagine. Yeah, right. But it's not a, it's not an action that is like disordered and against the very nature of what it means to be a human being. Killing your child always is, right? And you could say on on the same point to what you're saying is that expanding, which is actually what Planned Parenthood has done. It's it, some even say it targets low income communities of color, where it's like African American women or African Americans make up I think like. 10 to 13 percent don't don't quote me of the u.s population at 36 percent of the abortions right so you could say every year every day in the united states there's a close to a thousand black lives or they're aborted senselessly sure but then if we care about wealth inequality at all and we don't allow people to have abortions then it's not going to get better but how do things get better when we when we encourage a situation that inc- that involves uh it involves, like I said earlier, the shirking of responsibility. It involves destruction. It involves trauma. It involves immorality. That's not the answer, right? The answer would be something else, you know, um, like stronger family structures, stronger communities, right? We can't solve all the problems like overnight. Yeah. But I'd say the answer is increasing people's access to things that are actually fundamentally harmful to them and others. And again, it's the consequentialism argument. So we can't say that we should be able to do something so that we can have some so we can have some sort of measurable good and wealth equality. I'd say like when we start thinking like that, that becomes really dangerous, right? It's like, I mean, you and I have talked about this too. It can lead to like the eugenics argument, all I, sorts of stuff. I think you can justify anything yeah. with consequentialism. Okay. Well, yeah, that's, I, I wouldn't say I'm only a consequentialist. I think like you said, deontologists, you need to incorporate consequences into that, except maybe for you, it's deontology first, consequentialism second. For me, I think it'd probably be more like, consequentialist first deontology second you've got consequentialism with some side constraints things that you will not do even if they contribute to a good overall like killing people killing living people in the circumstance because we've been talking about abortion but killing people who are already born that's like a side constraint that even if sacrificing a human being will contribute to the betterment of society you don't do it i mean obviously unless they are underneath that barrier of what I would think of as a experience that makes them actually alive and actually a human. But I know we disagree on that. And this is something I've thought yeah, about yeah. a lot. So maybe I'll change my mind in the future. But yeah, I, I, I think it's, uh, you know, and it is something I was hoping we would discuss um, because I do think and I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because I do think it's an inconsistency with veganism. And it's, you know, there's some of these things where I remember talking to someone. There are some people that look at this and it, on it, when you look at those two facts, like person X is vegan and <laughs> pro-choice, strongly, passionately pro-choice. There's a lot of people that look at that and just say, no, absolutely not. I don't want anything to do with that. That's such a, it's, it's such a, it's a corrupt philosophy. It's flawed. It makes no sense. It's inhuman. It's inhumane. Right. And I think that hurts veganism. You know, same thing with like speciesism. I, I alluded to earlier, like I am a speciesist because I remember not because of this, but I do remember having a conversation with someone close to me and I actually recommended them that Gary Urofsky video because that was so hugely important for me, right? Just how he approaches veganism. But like within the first couple minutes of that, I had kind of forgotten this. He lays out speciesism as like the original sin of humanity. It's the discrimination between species is what's led to like sexism and racism and all forms of unjust discrimination, which I think is just like wrong. I think that's wrong. Uh, I think it could be the other way around that 
the tribalism or distinction made between humans, then you make distinctions between other animals, other sexes. Maybe it could be the reverse way. Yeah. Uh, so. Or like a third type of discrimination that led to both of those, right? Yeah, so sure. they, had, they had a common parent, so to speak. Yeah. But whatever the case is that he builds, and I had forgotten how much of his argument's based on speciesism. And it's like, it's kind of like a human rights kind of thing applied to animals and animals are at the, he is kind of at the, he is the, kind of argues that animals are at the same level of humans. In fact, in some interviews I've seen with him, he actually, I think he might place animals above because he thinks we're like so evil, right? Yeah. He's a misanthrope. And um, this person who I'd, I recommended this video to, they came back almost just like laughing. It's well, like, I said, you know, I think I said, like, did you watch that video? He said, he's like, oh, you mean the guy who's like a speciesist and believes that everything's the same and like, just like totally discounted it. And then I, I was reflect, like discounted veganism, oh. perhaps as well. I don't think, I don't think that person did. If this person's listening, <laughs> I don't assume that you discounted veganism, but discounted that whole, um, seemed to discount Yurovsky's argument. And then yeah. I reflected on it. It's like, actually, that's an appropriate response to that. It's an irrational, anti-speciesism is an irrational philosophy. And I don't think we should saddle veganism with like irrational philosophies. Yeah. One, because they're false. Two, because they're not helpful. Like I think consequentialism is false. I also think it's unhelpful because it leads to all sorts of horrible consequences, right? But it involves irrational thinking. It involves incorrect. It's just not true. It doesn't align with truth. And the same thing for, I think, uh, like the abortion issue too. And so it's just like, the more I think about it, it's like veganism should be approached more as like a principle with which we need to align our lives. And then that principle needs to be applied consistently to other animals, in this case, human animals, right? And so that, that pertains to our abortion discussion. And then once we consider humans with that same amount of respect, our understanding of humans uh, as possessing a unique dignity can help frame and properly orient our understanding of the other animals, right? So we can actually see, well, you know, and here I would say, actually, paradoxically, it allows us to make certain concessions with animals. Because if we can understand animals as below humans, then you're not going to be stuck in that dilemma where it's like, oh, if my kid's dying, is it wrong to kill the pig? Right? Yeah. Because you can say, well, although I love and respect pigs, I would never like ever, hopefully, God willing, I would never go out of my way to hurt a pig. Like, they're awesome, right? But I don't want that love and commitment to like their welfare and their goodness to ever get in the way of something like my kid's life, right? In those, in that weird extreme situation. So when we actually can disavow anti-speciesism and become speciesist, we can become actually, uh, veganism becomes more coherent. And here's kind of the coherence thing I was talking about earlier is like some of this stuff doesn't make sense, but with a few alterations, I think it makes more sense. So you said human or unique dignity about humans. What do you mean? How do you see humans as being uh, unique or higher? Well, I would say like in the situation, um, whereas I would be comfortable, not, I wouldn't be like overjoyed by the way, but I would be more comfortable for, for example, if I had to kill a pig to save my kid's life, right. I would not be comfortable with killing a human being. In fact, I would say, I think, uh, I think human life is inviolable. It's like sac sacrosanct and it should never be violated. So I would say our obligation to one another as human beings, like I should never sacrifice you for a greater good, which I think you said earlier too. Yeah. Right. So I would say we have a unique obligation to one another that we don't have to pigs. Although in, in view of this obligation and respect and like we're called to actually, I think we're called to love one another. Right. And if we, if that actually sinks in, we can actually 
let that kind of trickle down, so to speak, so that the loving relationships we have with one another can then inform our treatment of animals. But seeing ourselves in a unique place, it can also put a proper perspective on that. We don't have to think that the pig is just as good as my kid, or we don't need to think that the pig, for sure, we don't have to think it's better than my kid, right? Yeah. And then I would say, I don't know if you're asking why I think humans have a unique place. Yeah. Well, I would say like, if you examine human nature, I mean, it'd be the same thing. I'd say like, do you think animals, like if you had to kill like a, a grasshopper or a dog or an elephant, which one would you choose? <laughs> of the three? I mean, yeah. grasshopper. Right. And if you had, then if after they, if you know, this, um, some sort of malicious, malevolent tyrant was forcing you to kill one of the remaining two, the dog or the elephant. I'd kill the dog. Right. Why is that? Elephants live longer. There's less of them. Probably. What if they? What if they weren't like endangered and all that? If there's the same amount of all. And these what if things? they lived the same? What if they're the same lifespan as a dog? I, I don't know if it would matter. I might close my eyes and shoot one at random. Or you should be. Do you, how much do you know about elephants? You're saying like if. Or they, like a dolphin. I mean, I know elephants are really smart. Right. Yeah. Dogs are pretty smart too, though. So I think the reason I would rather kill a grasshopper is because there's a multitude of them. There's well, what if we <laughs> what if we eliminated all those variables and say everything being equal, like same lifespan, same population size, same okay, same I, I, level of how much they annoy us, all that. I think I'd still okay. I'd probably still kill grasshopper, then dog, then elephant, because it seems like it's easier for a grasshopper to accidentally die. It's easier for a dog to accidentally die than it is for an elephant. Elephants are more resilient to death than dogs are. Whether whether or not the age thing, it's just the fact that they're, they're large thick skin so i feel like by killing it i'm doing something that is more against what would have naturally happened than if i was killing a dog because a dog there's many other animals that are larger than it it's kind of small it can get crushed by things grasshopper can definitely get crushed by things so i feel like the probability that it would have died without my intervention so shouldn't they be spared no I, i'm just joking I, I i get your point yeah that makes sense yeah. so you're saying do something that is the le- that involves the least amount of interference with yes. like the natural course of yeah. the universe. Yeah. Yeah. Because the grasshopper is going to die tomorrow. Yeah. Most likely. Well, I mean, I, I was suspecting that you would say something about like the elephants, like memory and like personality. I know, I, I know the elephants they mourn are very smart. And, and yeah. But I don't. They're like I complex don't, communal creatures. And I don't think that should factor into my decision. Really? But that's an heightened experience. But like I was saying, I don't think um, there's a gradient of moral value. Okay, yeah, sure. It's just like a baseline experience. Anything above that, they all have the same moral value, yeah. roughly. I think I think the um, I think there is a gradient, and I don't think that that where you fall on that gradient in comparison to other species or in comparison to other points of your own lifespan, I don't think it has a a bearing on your own value. But I do think that collectively, like the species, the difference within species on those points, like in terms of like cognitive levels the ability to make choices the ability to live in communities i mean elephants they do more than they're dead you know yeah, that's like, true it's like it's like really sad <laughs> and to me i think that they require us to give greater consideration to the ant to the elephants and i would say the same thing about humans so like the the theological argument traditionally is that we're like made in god's image right but then the the traditional understanding of that is that we have a unique place within this universe as possessing intellects and wills like we make we have a free you know, this could be another rabbit hole of free will right <laughs> but we we um we understand the world at a, at a level at which nothing else even comes close and we interact with and we influence and we shape the world in ways that nothing else can even touch right 
So we have a unique dignity that I think comes from our unique powers, our faculties. And I would say that that applies to the whole species. So even if you are like severely impaired or you're comatose or something, right? The dignity that you have comes as from being a member of the species where these attributes and faculties are on the whole, they are like normative features. So that's why I would say humans have unique. And I, I think this is also intuitive too. Like we all know this is why we wouldn't kill. There's also the idea that um, we have a kinship with each other. So we should have greater responsibility, but that doesn't really relate to your question. Okay. So I feel like I would still see a hierarchy between animals of which one I would rather die if I was forced to kill them, like in the situation you gave. But I don't think I go to the lengths that a lot of people do in thinking of humans as exceptional or uniquely positioned. Certainly it seems humans are on the whole more intelligent and more capable than other animals. I don't know how important that actually is though. I think the reason why I would rather a non-human animal die than a human is just because I am a human and it is of my group. So it's kind of like a tribalism kind of thing. Sure. And I would view speciesism because I feel like it doesn't quite make sense to put every single animal on the same level of the hierarchy. So I'd say speciesism isn't, in my, in my opinion, my, my take on it, is that it's not like having a hierarchy. It's like allowing, not caring about things be, because they're a different species, you know? So like you can still say that you might care about a grasshopper less than a human, but you still care about the grasshopper. Where if you were a speciesist against grasshoppers, then you wouldn't care about them. So I feel like when I would think of somebody as a speciesist, it's that they don't give a shit about anything that isn't human. Not that they have some hierarchy in their mind. I, I, like, I wouldn't think of you as a speciesist, even though you say you are, you know? So maybe it's just a different way of defining that word or thinking of that word. Where maybe Gary Urofsky's idea of it, where everybody is on the same exact level, that doesn't quite make as much sense. And in that case, we're both speciesists. But in the way I take the word, neither of us are. But people who yeah. are not vegans are generally. I think like if you, when I've Googled this in the past, right? Speciesism yeah. or when I've seen it on like pamphlets, it's usually described as treating something or someone differently on the basis of species. Right. And in that case, I am a species. Yeah. And I suspect you are too. Yes. Treating them differently. Because sure. like it's, it's not just that we would kill the grasshopper because they're most likely to die. Like if we expanded the average grasshopper life to the elephant life and all this, but kept them them tiny little things that munch on leaves. And just, you know what I mean? Yeah. If we, if we made all things being equal, I think you would still, if you were forced to by this tyrant to kill one of them, you would kill the grasshopper because you do see there's a difference and you will treat them a difference based on species and you will treat them differently according to that difference. Right. So, yeah. but I, I see, I hear what you're saying, but I, I don't think that that really aligns with the common definition. Yeah, yeah. That's probably true. Because, I mean, with the common de definition, then you can't really avoid speciesism. It's something that really everybody is. Yes. I, I feel I almost feel like even the people who would claim not to be still are. Because put them in that situation, they're, they're not going to choose the, the... They'd probably still, still make a choice that would end up being speciesist. Totally agree. I think a lot of people that are really um, adamantly and passionately anti-speciesist are probably approaching it with the uh, from the lens that you were just describing, where they're saying, like, we should care about everything, no matter what species. Yeah. And I agree with that, too. I think we should care about rocks. You know what I mean? Like, if I can live my life without just, like, destroying some rock and cutting yeah. it in two. Now, I don't think that's the same as cutting a person in two. Yeah, right? I agree with you. There. But if yeah. I can live my life without, like, what's the value in me after we're done here just walking on the street and just, like, 
smashing up a rock. You know, like there's no point in that, right? Yeah. It just creates destruction. It also builds a habit of destructiveness within my own self. Yeah. Right. This is another cool, interesting thing about veganism too, not to, but just aside and aside is that one of the benefits of veganism is it's actually a way to cultivate virtue. So we could consider environment, animals, health, right? But there's also, it's like when you make a decision that's positive and life-giving and compassionate, you're, you're cultivating virtue within yourself, right? So I would say, even though like breaking a rock seems inconsequential, I'd say it actually does. It has like lingering effects within yourself. Are you like, saying do like you want to be that person? Yeah, like it builds your character in a certain way. Yeah, that, it's kind of a virtue ethics. So. Yeah. Yeah, right? I, I actually enjoy sometimes picking up twigs. Maybe these are dead, dead parts of trees, so it doesn't really matter, right? But um, there's been times in my life when I've actually torn little twigs off of branches, right? Yeah. And it's like, you know. Yeah, like why do that? Yeah, that's, Remember, like, that's just... way worse if you think about it, right? And it's like you're actually you're actively harming a plant. Yeah. And so it's just like, uh, I would say, you know, and obviously it gets more severe and uh, it gets more, I think, uh, blameworthy the higher you go. If yeah. you like break someone's arm off, right? But it's like, I think, I think it's worth thinking about. And so in that case, I do really actually enjoy the anti-species arguments because they, they invite us to think about how should we, what should be our attitude towards everything, Yeah. right? Regardless of species, you know? And it's like, as much as possible, like your attitude should be one of love, you know, and nonviolence. And like, that's kind of, I guess, I think that's beautiful. Yeah. I really like how there's a lot of different directions that you can come from toward to veganism. Like you and I disagree on some things, but we're still both vegans. And I uh, don't actually foresee myself supporting or being the cause of any abortions in my lifetime. Yeah. So I feel like the actions that we produce in our lives will be similar, but there are generating beliefs that we have that make those things might differ and i feel like from an outside perspective looking in on veganism it seems like everybody is all just hive mind doing the same exact thing they're all crazy anti-speciesists whatever gary urofsky type thinking people but there's a lot of diversity within veganism where we can all disagree with each other just like everybody disagrees with each other on all sorts of topics I agree. It's been cool. Like our kind of some of our circle of friends where it's like, and there's, there's many times I have discussions with people where I disagree, but then it's like, I, I think it is really, I think it's really great that there are certain things that we agree about deep down and yeah. like we're making choices to advance that. So it's like, even if you and I are disagreeing on this podcast, it's like, you know, you know, I have tons of respect for you. Yeah. I mean, for many reasons, but um, I think it's really cool. For example, like you start this podcast, like it's awesome right to get people discussing and thinking and sharing things are that they're really passionate about and big ideas it's like that's cool and with veganism um i do agree i think it can be a bigger tent yeah if i can kind of actually summarize some of my points earlier i think you know honestly what i'm thinking is like veganism should include more conservatives i guess that's kind of what i'm trying to say too right like, why do you think it doesn't i don't know um, well, it's kind of like the points I was making about moral philosophy and then pro-life and like speciesism. It's like there's a lot of people who kind of look at this and say that this is like a direct attack on things that are like self-evidently true. Not not to say that like conservatives are always on the side of self-evident truths, but there will be people who are conservative who think that there are things that are just clearly and plainly true that are rejected by veganism. And so that is an issue. I also think like for some reason... um, when we align veganism, and I think it should be aligned with the environment because they obviously go hand in hand, right? Yeah. But that's for some incomprehensible reason seen only as a liberal partisan issue, right? Yeah. Um, so that's 
that's one reason conservatives don't feel drawn to veganism. I also do think like veganism seems like an attack. Like even though I'm saying it should adopt some more traditional norms and approaches to thinking, veganism is seen as an attack on traditional ways of living. What well, kind of has to be? Yes. Uh, although I think it can grow out of tradition. If, a lot of cultures have like slowly become less and less destructive. You yeah. know, so even if like some society that like, killed a bunch of animals, I would say within that society, if it's a sound traditional society, they have the mechanism to slowly become less violent. And yeah. that, that's happened. Like think of how many animals used to get sacrificed for religious services, but yeah. now it's like barely any do, you know? Um, which is awesome. And so that that's happening within tradition, religious traditions, right? But a lot of people look at it and say like, no, my culture is all about having huge feasts of, you know, dining on all sorts of animal products. And that's part of our cultural culinary history, right? And I would say that's actually true of like every culture almost. So then I would just say, well, like, is that a value that is that a cultural traditional value that um, must be held onto at all costs? Can it, can it not be expressed in a different way? You know, can we not have like large feasts that are celebrative and like amazing and loud and like music and like awesome food and family bonding without like killing the pig? Yeah. Right. And I say, can, I think we can capture that's that which is most essential in most traditions without killing the pig. You said that I would hope that the reduction of animal sacrifice in religious ceremonies has gone down because of change from within the tradition. Do you think that's is it actually the case, or, or do you think it's outside influence, like the people who aren't part of that tradition but still part of that culture, critiquing them? Like, for instance, non-Jews critiquing Jewish animal sacrifice throughout history, causing them to change it. Do you think it actually happens from within? Sure, or Romans destroying the temple yeah. so they can, so they can no longer do it. Yeah, yeah. I think it comes from without a lot, but I what I would say is if you let it play out, um, you see like you see the seeds of like a nonviolent approach towards animals in the Old Testament itself, right? You see these ideas about a future day when like kids are sitting and hanging out with cobras because cobras don't even want to eat your kid; they don't want to st- bite your kid, and you see you know lions laying down with lambs. So it seems like a regeneration of the whole planet. Right. And I think from that, we could infer that humans also aren't trying to like kill cobras and lions and lambs. And um, so I would say, like, you know, or like in the Bible, the original diet was basically vegan. It was vegan. Right. So that you have like from the original, the origin, you have a peaceful, nonviolent lifestyle in like the garden. Everything before Noah is like vegan. Right. So I'd say, is there, is there not reason to suspect that if that's the beginning, wouldn't uh, veganism also be the end? Right? So even though the reduction in Jewish religious sacrifices probably came from things like Romans or critiques from other cultures or something like that, right? I would say the mechanism for a natural decrease probably would have been there if we like put it in a vacuum. Oh. I would hope. Or like in India, like a lot of the Hindu religious, like they were critiqued by the Buddha and the Jains because they're like extreme nonviolent yeah. uh, philosophies. But I would say, well, like the Buddhists like rejected the whole Vedic ritual sacrificial system but he was also very much a part of that culture so even though he was outside of the tradition yeah right i don't know the distinction but like how to parse that yeah i do think ultimately because i believe like veganism is true i don't just think it's like useful or beneficial i think it's true and i think truth wins what do you mean by true are you using it proper and right are you using it in like the jordan peterson sense of oh man like (laughs) 
what wisdom and beauty and goodness and actual truth all rolled into one. Yes, although that's awesome because I listened to that debate and I never really fully understood the Sam Harris. Jordan I think it's like half of it. Yeah, yeah, but that's, yes, that's I what would, it ended up actually being. I would agree with. I would agree that truth is more is, than just like lower case it's, truth. It's beauty and goodness. It's a universal transcendent value, and the ultimate truth is God, a necessarily existent reality. I think that's another place <laughs> where we disagree. <laughs> But do you believe there is truth? I wouldn't define truth as that. I would but say. But do you believe there is a truth? Yeah, I believe truth is a thing. Because you're against relativism, right? Right. That's something that we do agree on is that moral relativism doesn't make any sense and is bad. But yeah, I definitely think that there is such thing as truth. I don't necessarily think that makes it beautiful or good or anything like that. But is truth ever evil? I don't know if is truth it? necessarily has a moral valence, positive or negative. I think it might just be neutral, and then what you do with it is good or evil. That's probably how I would see it. I would say the truth is always good. Um, existence is. O- I would say existence is always good. We we've talked about this yeah. too. <laughs> existence is always good. It's always true by definition, and it's always beautiful. It's always unified. Um, so this is kind of like borrowing from like scholastic Catholic philosophy, but um, yeah, I would say that, and then um, and I would say veganism falls into that. So things that falls under that things that promote more existence are always good always true always beautiful and anything that exists is good and beautiful or what do you mean exactly by just existence insofar as it exists it is good because existence is a good okay so like you could have a better or worse existence but the fact that you exist is still all things considered good yeah okay and just to frame this too, because I was saying that I think veganism will ultimately win and these cultures would eventually, you know, and I think cultures will eventually become veganism because I think it's true, right? So that to, to frame our, for myself mainly yeah. here, like why are we discussing? Like, And I would say that yes, it is true. And I would say anything that exists is true and good by the fact of its existence, right? So there would be like levels of different truth and goodness, obviously, but but the sheer fact of its existence is good. So then I would say, Something that promotes increased existence promotes increased goodness and truth and beauty. Even if it's a technological, unnatural promotion of increased existence? Is that an increase of existence, though? Okay, do you think death is bad because it's the lack of yes, existence? I do. Even So, like, natural death, like, you yeah. die in old age? Yes. Okay. I don't think it's, like, a moral, like, you don't blame people for dying. Right, but yeah. it's, like, a, it's an evil insofar as it's a lack of a... It deprives us of a, of a good... <laughs> this is maybe um too meta but how about the existence of death is that good or bad there is no existence of death. it has no like substance i mean it's, it's just a lack of existence but it, it's like a constant truth in the universe that all things that exist die things end you know wouldn't that make like the I, the concept of death something that exists and will always exist well, same for like hatred yeah but I would say hatred has no so positive physical value. Existence? Hatred is like parasitically dependent upon love. Love is what exists. Hatred is something that, and this like I would say is a mystery how this happens, but it kind of mysteriously is a, it diminishes the love in the same way that death mysteriously diminishes life um, and therefore goodness. But I would say anything that does exist is good. Okay, so then if natural death is a, you know, existential bad, then how about technological pursuits that artificially increase life, longevity? Are those, by definition, good? Because I feel like you're normally against those things, such as um, 
say putting someone's consciousness into a uh, computer program so that they can live many hundreds more years just as their conscious awareness and their physical body has long been decayed. But that, that actually strikes at the basic integrity of the human person. So it's actually destructive. So is the human's pers- human person's integrity just with That's their not- body or is it like their mind both at once? It's both. So if you get rid of the one... I mean, have you ever known a human that's just a body or just a mind? But I'm, So I'm saying in the future, if we could separate those two things, then it would be just categorically bad? Well, I would admit that I, I don't think about this particular question right. too deeply or too often, but I would say that although we can see that there's some extension and there's an extension of life and existence at some degree, what I'd say is also that extension itself, it's a privation. It's a lack of life because it's a lack of the, the proper and natural existence of the human being. It's like some court, some sort of like mutated, perverted version of what we thought was human humanity. And, you know, and this is where I do think consequences are valuable. They're not yeah. the be all end all. Yeah. But I'd say this kind of stuff leads to exploitation. It leads to um, dehumanization. It leads to all sorts of abuses, the technology in general. Like, like keeping people on life support. Is that something you're thinking of? Would that be good or bad? People say you fall into a coma and you need assistance to breathe and to eat. So, you know, you're getting fed with the tubes in a hospital and maybe in 10 years you'll wake up or maybe you'll never wake up. Is that an exploitative feature like technology sapping you of your existence or is it promoting your existence? I think it should promote your existence. So I, I don't I don't have a wholesale rejection of technology, right? Right. Yeah. Just like the fe- those features that would be artificially making you live longer. Yeah. And, about. and the thing with technology is that it's 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 amoral. So it has no internal compass that's preventing it from leading to exploitation, right? Especially if the market can sustain it. There's nothing prevent it from leading to all sorts of like grave and like nightmarish consequences, right? So that'd be one one criticism I have. But when it's used properly in a way that supports and promotes human flourishing and life and existence and the be- beauty and goodness I was talking about earlier, then I think that's awesome, right? On that specific question, I do think like, well, that's that's going to need like euthanasia stuff but like i don't think like we have an obligation to always i i pretty much line up with catholic philosophy on all of this stuff and i would say we don't always have an obligation in every case to like continue the life support if that person's actively dying yeah you know what i mean um, like if they would be dead without the life support yeah that's usually what's like called like something like an extreme measure i think what they call and so it's like in that case it's not something that's a basic need that they have like i would say starving them and removing food and water that's like an injustice. Yeah. But there are cases in which like taking them off life support, I think it's uh, warranted or it's permissible, not warranted. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think like, I think the truth, you know, a- apart from like, what is the truth? Because I think there's also a distinction between moral truth and goodness and then like some sort of metaphysical or ontological goodness. Right. And so we are kind of veering into sort of like existence itself is good. And that's yeah. like ontological. Yeah. And I think what I was talking about was also like a moral good. Like it's a moral good, which connects to ontological because when we follow what's morally good, it creates beauty in this world, right? It creates like relationships. It creates joy and happiness. Wasn't well, that love. why it's called deontological? <laughs> uh, well, that's just deon means the yeah. word duty. Yeah. But yeah, but like when we, when we follow like our connects. proper duty, I, it probably is a connection somehow. When we do that, it does create like ontological goodness. And so I think... Um, I just have a confidence that like veganism is going to win, dude. I feel like and, I do too. Because it has to. Though, I don't know if I 
would say that it's true in the same sense that you're you're imagining. Oh it, come but... on! <laughs> I, I just think it's um an obvious failure and exploitation, failure to acknowledge the suffering that is happening in the world. And I don't know. I'm not viewing it through a entirely consequentialist lens, but I think even if you do, you can still come come to the same conclusion that it's massive amount of suffering that is unjust and doesn't even need to exist yeah it's like disgusting man it's like the endless cycle of just pointless violence right yeah. it's going on like every second of the day and if you look up the stats on like how many chickens are killed yeah. every year globally it's it's inexcusable and this is why another thing that vegans should uh get over is the the stereotype of being pushy because i actually don't think we're pushy enough I don't think we're aggressive enough or bold enough where it's like, if this really sinks in like the massive amount of carnage, it's like really, it's a tragedy. Right. And so I think like, I don't know if it involves us reminding ourselves of that more often and here. I'm like preaching to myself, but like, what does it take for us to be more active? Because there's nothing, I can't think of a single choice that like someone can make that would be um, like a higher leverage choice they can make that would have an impact on their own life or that would be more compassionate or better for the environment, fix the entire healthcare crisis. Is there, is there a single choice someone could make on all those points other than just like going vegan? It's like the single most positive thing someone could do. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, and yet we have like, I was listening actually to like a, a Catholic priest this morning, a sermon from a Catholic priest, uh, MP3, and he was talking about um, like God's grace, but it, it kind of relates here because he was saying when you have something that's given to you as a gift, if you don't share it, it's an abuse of the gift. And it made me think about, because I knew we were about to talk in like two hours at that point. It made me think about veganism because it's like you and I, there's like a series, like we made choices, right? But there's yeah. also a series of happy accidents that led, I'm assuming, to both of us becoming vegan. And like yeah. the fact that I, I started thinking about it in the year 2014 in the era of YouTube, like I was extremely fortunate and these are things that I were completely unmerited, right? So it's like gratuitous. So my veganism, large part, perhaps entirely is a gift. So I, and I know it's a very valuable gift. So I almost think it's like, like we need to get more aggressive, man. Yeah. You know, like get over like the fear of being a pushy vegan. Yeah. It's just something that I think it's kind of a balancing act to walk on because if you're a vegan and you have lots of friends who aren't vegans, if you are constantly being pushy with them all the time, they might not want to be your friends anymore. So I feel like there's a certain, and then if you never talk about it at all and you just eat meals with them while they're eating whatever they want to and you make no comments whatsoever and you act like it doesn't matter to you, that also isn't going to help. You still be friends with them, but they're not going to gain anything. They're not going to, you're not going to provoke any thoughts in them if you say nothing. So I feel like there's a middle ground where you say enough, often enough, to get them thinking, but not so much that you distance yourself from them and they like push you out of their life or you push them out of yours. Because I feel like you need to keep people close to you in order to influence them. And to do that, you have to not be annoying. Yeah. I don't know. I used to like post on Facebook. Like I would post like once a month roughly because I was getting angry enough about some topic, make a post. It's about veganism. And then I looked back over like the past year of my Facebook activity and it was all just posts about veganism. And I was like, maybe I should stop because people are probably just thinking I'm becoming a caricature of myself instead of, I don't know, a person who cares about more than just one thing. Yeah, I definitely think like, and especially the, um, 
the particular dynamics of any given relationship can like dictate how we how we act or do that for some people it's just going to be like living your life and being happy yeah and being a joyful and as healthy as you can being a vegan and they know it and every time that they see you eating they're reminded you don't have to say anything right yeah, that's true and, and i think in all these relationships no matter what it should be it should be directed by love we should be actually concerned for them as a person and if we're actually just leading them to feel ashamed of themselves right. or leading them to feel constantly judged. Like that's usually not an expression of love, but at the same time, we can't be afraid of it. Cause it's also loving to like help people. Yeah. Constructive <laughs> and if you love criticism. Someone, yeah. And if you love someone, you want what's best for them. You want them to like make positive choices. And yeah. so it's like, this could apply to veganism or any other thing, you know, how spouses, you know, and close friends, they always have these issues because there's something you would love to see in your spouse yeah. or in your best friend. And you love this person so much. Right. But you can't just like talk about it every day because that's it becomes like a form of harassment. Yeah. It's not loving. But um, but like in general, like I just think like, you know, if you search vegan or something on YouTube or on the Internet, it's just it lacks like the edge. It, it's just like, you know, it's just like a cool life choice. with Like, yeah, colorful food choices. And uh, it's just like, OK, is there more going on here? And is this like is this something that's extremely is it important? Right. And that's it's actually extremely important. If so, then like where's the uh where's the sense of urgency? And maybe this applies more to like our interaction with the general public or yeah, political. You know, I think of like peace is it a PCRM? That's like um Dr. Barnard and Dr. Greger, they have an organization that literally lobbies on behalf of you know oh. plant based diets and animal welfare. They're like a political entity. They've like sued the um FDA, I think multiple times <laughs> and, and won. You know, for like their dietary recommendations and things like that, I think. Yeah. Um, but anyways, it's like, you know, man, there should be more organization to like make this happen. Yeah. But think of how much went into like other types of like public health issues, how much organization there is to like rally around that to make social change. It's like, well, where is it on veganism? It's like, this is killing us. This stuff's killing us every day. Yeah. I think there's kind of like two parts of the perception of um, veganism that some people have. One part is that it's just a diet and it has no ethical ramifications. They just find it an interesting, strange diet that some people are following. And then the other half of the people are thinking that it's militant vegans trying to ram their ethics down your face and they're too aggressive. And I feel like both things are wrong. Yeah. But I think I'm generally against lobbying in all forms. But I feel like if we're living in a world where lobbying exists, then I guess that's one of the better things it can be used for. It's kind of slimy. But yeah. I don't know. But at the same time, is it slimy for the FDA to recommend all this garbage for like yeah. little kids to eat? And yeah. then we grow up addicted to it. And then it's all we ever want. And we all, you know, and then we die. That's pretty slimy too. So it's like maybe lesser of two evils. Yeah. <laughs> I did want to mention one thing. Didn't want to throw us off track into abortion again. But there is one thing I would have to say about that is I, I feel like a species has the right to be self-destructive but not destructive of others. So humans are free to destroy themselves and make themselves go extinct or whatever they want. That's their choice. I mean, it's not good, but you don't have the right to go and just kill other things. You can, you can ruin your, your own life, but don't ruin the life of something that is completely unrelated that you can't even fully understand, like a, a different species entirely. But then like, what about like all of our worst types of criminal activity? Like, Well, yeah, I mean... I'm, those are all interhuman... Yeah, intra intra species right. acts you, you, of violence. You should still do something about them. You shouldn't just let it let it happen. But I'm just saying, as a general rule, I think it's better for better for the intra species warfare than inter species warfare. 
like to just let other other species do what they will. And then another point on the abortion thing is that well, you could we could say that humans have a higher place on the hierarchy, and there are lots of deaths through abortion happening. There's a significantly greater amount of deaths through eating animals happening. And even if you view the death of a cow as lesser than the death of a human, I feel like the sheer abundance of cow deaths makes veganism a more important issue than abortion, even if abortion is an important issue. Do you have a hierarchy between those two issues? Which one you view as more important? If you could see one solved before the other, would it be abortion or veganism? Abortion. Oh, okay. So that's another spot where we differ. Yeah. Yeah, to me, I would say that this is, um, you know, in fact, in the, to that point about like Yurovsky's theory of the original sin being speciesism, I think we both agree this probably came something more closely to do with how we treat one another that then affected its spread to our treatment of animals and the natural world. And I'd say abortion like would lie right at the heart of that, right? So this is one of it is one of our closest relations, and we've completely severed it, and then we've like kind of almost um, enshrined it as a basic human right. Um, and now it's getting to the point where it's not something that's permittable. It's like publicly celebrated and people are shamed for even questioning the celebration of that act, which I would say is um, it's a rejection of like, like I said earlier, it's a rejection of our own human humanity insofar as we reject our own human uh, relationships or obligations to one another. So I would say that that would be something and not just because it would possibly impact our treatment of animals, but just because I think it is a more serious issue. It is the, the way we our treatment of others, I would say it's kind of the polar opposite of what you just said. <laughs> I would say the, um, we have a greater obligation to preserve our own species than others, right. especially, and then add to the fact that the unique, undeniably unique place that our species has within, within the natural world. I think like what I was saying before, it's kind of a paradoxical point. We, I do think we have a greater obligation to take care of our own species than others. And I also think we have a right to kill ourselves and not others in the same way. So I feel like it's a, it's a non-interference on other species kind of standpoint. Like we, we should take care of our own species and let the other species do what they want to without doing anything to them. Yeah. Non-interference, non-intervention. Yeah. But I would say it's still kind of like how earlier you were saying like responsibility also seems to like give you greater license and give you rights. Yeah. But I'd say like if we truly, if we can truly see and perceive that responsibility, then we know that that actually precludes certain rights, right? So if I can understand my responsibility towards you as a person, then that rules out a lot of the things that, not that I would ever want to do, I would ever hope for a right to like misuse you or hurt you or right. use you, right? But the fact that I can value you and see you and see my responsibility toward you, that doesn't increase my rights, the potential things I could do to you, it actually de decreases them, right? It throws out all these possibilities. Like, like I said, I would never want to hurt you, but it actually precludes it. It's like responsibility. I think, like you were saying before, with the perception of veganism being tied to pro-choice and people like not wanting to have any part of that, I think it's really good that you're on here as a vegan who is pro-life. I feel like that, for anybody listening to this, will show that that is a thing that happens. <laughs> it's not just <laughs> yeah, all, it should happen all vegan, a lot more. all vegan pro-choice people. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's. I don't know. It feels like a little bit of like um something. Well, it's something I'm really interested in, obviously. Yeah. Like where those two things intersect <laughs> and, uh, and um, continuing that conversation because it's like sometimes I look at things in the world and it's like, why are these two things at odds with each other? Like I was saying about the environment earlier. And yeah. Like, why does like the GOP hate the environment? It makes no sense. 
I would um, guess pro business. Yeah, it, it makes some sense. But like, if you're like a true conservative, I don't know. It's like it's right there in the word conservation, you know. And it's just like, yeah. Um, well, it I, doesn't need to be the yeah. I don't think conservatives were historically anti-environmentalism. I feel like maybe that's uh, become a newer thing. Yeah. As we've realized more of the effects of industry on the world. Yeah. I just read a really good book by uh, Sir Roger Scruton. He actually tries to make an argument for a conservative case for environmentalism. That, And he lays out a whole, uh, I, I missed the last two chapters, but he actually gives kind of a timeline of different conservative movements that actually did had strong environmental emphasis and yeah. focus. So yeah, I think there's a place for it. And then with veganism, it's just, you know, it's a shame if like half of the country is Republican but then, like I was saying earlier, this is like an extremely valuable message, one that I think is true, right, and good yeah. and beautiful. <laughs> then why are we just almost like we're like shutting the door or they're shutting the door on like half of the, the populace? Yeah. That's a shame when it's like we all love animals deep down. We all want to like support life. We all want to be like less destructive. We all want to be more compassionate. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like even Republicans. Yeah. Veganism doesn't need to be made a political partisan issue. Mm-hmm. Well, before we wrap up the podcast, I'd like to ask you any book recommendations that you have. You just mentioned one, but do you, do you have any other ones? Or you could talk about that one more if you want. No, I'll recommend one. It's a weird one. It's from like 800 years ago. It's called um, Hai Ibn Yaqzan. That's spelled H-A-Y-Y-I-B-N-Y-A-Q-Z-A-N. And it's by an author, um, Ibn Tufail. He's a He's either Persian or Spanish, but he's like a Muslim philosopher. And he wrote this kind of, it's like a thought experiment of a person who's like, this kid is trapped on a deserted island. He grows up all by himself. And, but through that process, he comes to understand, like he's raised by this antelope or a deer or something. And it's really cool. Like she dies and he performs surgery on her. He's trying to save her life. His mom's dead, you know, but it's like through that, he learns like medicine. And then he learns like botany and he learns philosophy he eventually proves god's existence he's like contemplating the metaphysical nature of reality it's really cool but to our discussion and like pertinent to that there's a section where he starts thinking about like what he should be eating and it's so cool eight probably 850 years ago it's a full-blown argument for veganism from a muslim philosopher it's like you know islam doesn't promote veganism but he was he uh he advanced more vegan than americans not eating pork yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, the, yeah, for sure. But he he has his main character advance an argument for veganism. In fact, fruitarianism. Um, yeah. As a consequence of his understanding of God and like the nature of reality, where he says God is basically sustaining all of our existence. Everything is working towards you know, apart from like animals that are trying to prey upon us, right? Yeah. The natural world is like supporting us with sunlight and water. Everything is like working towards the support of these things living like plants and animals. And he starts reflecting on that. And he says, well, then I could be eating animals. I could be eating fruit. I could be eating vegetables. But then he basically says, which of those three courses of action most lines up with what he sees coming from like this necessary existent loving being, right? He says it's obviously fruit, right? He says, if I can't find good fruit, then I'll eat some veggies. You know, and then he says, if that doesn't work, then I have to, I'll eat like eggs or meat, right? I think it's a really cool book. One, because, um, yeah, he's sitting there contemplating the soul. He like has this huge, awesome meditative experience at the end. It's like a really cool book. What was it called again? It's called High Ibn Yaqzan. Is that something you think you could find at the library? Or is that, <laughs> it seems like a hard find. 
Uh, no, I think you need to like buy it. So, but don't buy it from Amazon. But like, yeah, you could buy it from like to yeah. not support Amazon. Yeah, okay. but like you can get it online. Yeah, that's an awesome book. What about any music? Are you a fan of uh, any music right now that you're listening to? Kanye West. <laughs> What's his latest album? Um, is uh, that the Jesus King one? Jesus King. Yeah. I, um, I don't listen to much music. I enjoy Kanye West. And uh... how about any uh, media like TVs, movies? No, any? never. Well, how about in the past? I mean, I, oh, is there a movie that has ever been made that you would recommend? Um, yeah, no, I, I like, I like a lot of movies. It's just like, I'm not good at thinking about like, like surveying all the ones I've seen right, and sure, picking sure. one. So I know um, you're a fan of, um, I heard Huckabees. I was just about to say yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> I do love that movie. I think that that has a connection to this topic too, you know, with the, uh, existence and well yeah like the unity of being like we don't have to think everything's exactly the same but when we can see and appreciate similarities like i think veganism kind of hinges on the ability to see that there's things that we know about ourselves that are true of animals as well maybe not to the same degree but like you said earlier animals want to live we all know our dog wants to live you know our dogs get sick when they get sad when they're sick and they do all you know what i mean yeah we can see all this and we can then relate to them in a sense that shows like a unity of, of being between us and them. You know, there's a, a character who's making extreme radical life choices based on like his political principles or his philosophical principles about um, petroleum. And I think that relates to, yeah. <laughs> not that veganism is really radical, but yeah, it's a great movie. It's hilarious too. It is really good. Well, thank you for coming on this podcast, Matt. Thank you, Wade. Is there anything else you want to mention? Anything you didn't talk about that you wanted to? No, I just would say, like, if anything about this, um, I hope nothing I said actually is off-putting. Part of my goal is um, I want to actually promote veganism, as I think you do too, right? And I think um, it's something that I want to invite everyone. And I, hopefully our discussion shows that, like like you said earlier, that it doesn't need to be unanimity within our, like, group, our, our family, right? Yeah. But um, there is room for diversity and I think it can accommodate many different people that come from many different angles. And you and I are pretty similar anyways. I don't mean that, but like it is accommodating. And so if anything I said today, hopefully it sparks interest. Um, but if any of you are offended because I'm like too conservative, I do not apologize, <laughs> but, but I am aware of that. So I hope you found something interesting and I would say, try something out. So are you like pro reducitarianism? Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Right. I, like it's, obviously better if you're going to not eat meat on mondays and still eat it every other week than eating it all the time like taking steps towards that direction is always better yes and i i fully agree and so i would say if anything about this conversation or anything that uh in the background of your own life is kind of you feel pushing you towards this try to make a few choices and just try it out and if you want to go all the way then i think you should i think you should and if you feel you're ready to do it you should do it but i hope uh I encourage all of you to like take one step towards it today. Yeah. So that'd be what I say. That's cool. Yeah. That everybody should do that. Well, thanks for being on here. Thanks for listening. You listener. And I'll see you next time.